You're listening to Talking Taiwan with your host, Felicia Lin. July is BIPOC Black Indigenous People of Color Mental Health Month, which is also known as Bebe Moore Campbell National Minority Mental Health Awareness Month. Named for the mental health advocate who brought awareness to the unique challenges that underrepresented groups face in regard to mental illness in the U.S. I've invited Susan Chung onto Talking Taiwan to talk about her career in mental health and BIPOC Mental Health Month. Susan is a licensed clinical social worker at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, who provides psychotherapy specifically to BIPOC students. We also spoke about key statistics and research findings that inform us about the mental health of Asians, some of the unique challenges facing BIPOC communities and individuals, the racism that Susan has experienced as a mental health professional, and the importance of managing our own mental health. This episode of Talking Taiwan has been sponsored by NATWA, the North America Taiwanese Women's Association. NATWA was founded in 1988, and its mission is 1. To evoke a sense of self-esteem and enhance women's dignity. 2. To oppose gender discrimination and promote gender equality. 3. To fully develop women's potential and encourage their participation in public affairs. 4. To contribute to the advancement of human rights and democratic development in Taiwan. And five, to reach out and work with women's organizations worldwide to promote peace for all. To learn more about NATWA, visit their website, www.natwa.com. Without further ado, here's our interview. Welcome to the podcast, Susan. Hi, thank you for having me here. I'm very excited to be here just to talk, to chat, to share whatever yeah. I have. Yeah. yeah, thank you. I actually wanted to talk to you a little bit about your career and your work in mental health first so that my mm -hmm. audience can get to know you a little bit. Can mm -hmm. you tell me how you got interested in studying mental health um, social work? Yeah, well, I mean, it's a long story, but I don't want to go on and on about why. But then long story short, it's like, I'm an immigrant from Taiwan. So when I first came here, I have this friend, which I don't want to know, she knows, identify her name. And she, when she was going to college, she became really sick mentally. Like she has severe depression. Oh. And then that's kind of how kind of get me into like interest in, like what happened to her. You know, like she was always kind of like in the shy side of you know, knowing her from middle school all the way to college. But then she got really, really sick. And then so I was trying to help her. And I was, and then I started, I decided to start a major in psychology because of her. But I just want to wow. understand why she became depressed in a very severe way. And then, and then I would go to see a, okay, so the turning point was one time she asked me if I can go to see a therapist with her because she was really nervous. It was like, okay, I'll oh, go wow. with you. I, yeah, in a way, I was kind of curious too, like, how did that look like, right? So mm -hmm. she found this Taiwanese I think, therapist, oh, wow. psychologist, yeah, uh, in LA. So I was very excited, but I was also very disappointed. So as soon as we walk in, and my friend has severe depression, so she had a hard time talking. Like she talked mm -hmm. really, really slow. Mm -hmm. So I remember the psychologist asked her, that, "Hey, how are you doing? How how's your week?" So even for that, it's really hard for her. So she had a hard time. She was like, "Uh, uh, like her hard time speaking." And the psychologist just pick up his phone and start talking to his friend on, in the therapy session. Yeah, and he was like, hey, uh, so I'll meet you at 3 p.m. for tennis match. Me, I was so That's shocked. Ridiculous. And I, <laughs> it's ridiculous. But she couldn't find anybody. You know, that was like such a really like a need in that in our community. And I was so shocked and I, I was so upset. I think my friend didn't even seem concerned because she still, had, she still struggled to come she up with the answer. She didn't realize, yeah. Yeah, she She's didn't realize. trying to take care of herself. She didn't have a good sense of evaluating the situation. Yes. And that really drew me to, I need to do something with mental health. And, and so long story short, I decided to become a social worker because I really want to provide, you know, that kind of direct services to our population, yeah, to our communities. Oh, wow, that's so touching. Thank yes. you for sharing mm -hmm. that. Yes. It's it's very interesting, I think, when people why people decide to go into this kind of work. There's usually some kind of a 
personal story behind there. Mm -hmm. I understand that you're also interested in forensic social work, right? So what's the difference between social work, because most people know what social work is, and forensic social work? Yeah, I think, also a long story, but then short story is my first job uh, after I graduated from grad school, I I happened to you know, get into this project is also like working toward uh, human trafficking victims. And that's kind of how, it, because I really, I just desperate for a job. And that was in 2009, <laughs> you know, there was a great repression, uh, recession. So mm-hmm. I was just happy to have a job. And then they're like, yeah, we had this special project. Um, so I was in the Bay Area. So I didn't know Bay Area and San Francisco, uh, San Francisco and New York were the biggest hub for human trafficking, especially for the Chinese population. So that's why I was involved in this project. And then because I have that in my resume, so everywhere in my future, you know, every time there's an opportunity, it's always about my experience with that human trafficking experience. So I think that's kind of how I get into the forensic social work, because it's something related to like legal system, legal like crime, you know, that's the biggest difference between forensic and regular social work. Oh, okay. So it has yeah. to do with the legal system. Could you elaborate a little bit more? Yeah, usually it's for our like people with um, conviction, like with crime, you know. So we, I go to court a lot. I work with like FBI, mm-hmm. you know, or like police, law enforcement a lot regarding to our clients. Yes. So does it deal specifically with incarcerated populations? Mostly, yes. Anyone oh, who are somehow involved with crime-related stuff. I wonder if you'd be a little bit, if you'd be open to talking about your career path so far and the challenges that you face, because I think it is also interesting for people to know what it's like to be in the mental health field mm-hmm. and what you deal with and what you've dealt with personally. Well, that's a big topic. I can also, yeah. again, go on and on about this. Um, <laughs> I think my career path has been really interesting because I was really focused about, like, how, you know, like, do a lot of, because as a social worker, I do a lot of case management, you know, like, kind of kind of like a, almost like a care coordinator for our client to, you know, talk. Because I was, as I mentioned, I was working with a lot of survivors of human trafficking. So I talked with a lot of attorney about their case and try to help them to, get any kind of you know legal legal status or talk mm-hmm. to the their criminal lawyer to kind of help them to get out the the charge that they, they were being charged for. You know, just mm-hmm. that's why just a lot of that. And it's very burdensome because just the story is so heartbreaking to yeah. hear like repeatedly. Yes. And about it is it's such a humbling experience too because it helped me to realize this nobody we can really judge, you know, and because most of my clients I serve are uh, uh, from China, you know, Chinese immigrants. Mm-hmm. Or, oh, I see. Yeah, so, and then, you, and then we, we just talk about how I'm a Taiwanese, I identify as Taiwanese, so it's such an interesting division, but at the same time, it really helped me to get to know them as a human level, nothing about their government, nothing about whatever Yes. So that is that, um, but at the same time, I realize I'm really passionate in really providing, like, psychotherapy to people. And then that's why my career is interesting. And I went back to the hospital working with children because I feel they are the hope, you know, like kind of what we talk about mental health, right? Like if I can have some kind of change in their life, or even if I'm just there for a year in their life, I hope that they will have a much better outcome in their future. And that's why I kind of working with children. I'm really enjoying working with kids. But my my niche is like middle school and high school kids. Even though okay. it sounds and and now I know uh, I'm working at UNC Chapel Hill as a college yes. counselor. It is also a challenge for myself. You know, I think I yeah. still at the face of keeping challenging myself because yeah. I really I so I work a lot with children. Now I want to kind of go to the next level. You know, when they are more reflective about their life, when they are the same time they're confused about their life, I want to be there to be the guidance for them. Going back to your work with the trafficking victims. Mm-hmm. I was curious because I imagine, as you mentioned, it is very difficult to deal with this population and to talk to these people and hear their personal stories. Mm-hmm. So as a social worker in that context, 
How do you mm -hmm. deal with that part, meaning the part that can affect you personally or your mental health? Yeah, that's a very good question. Like when I, my supervisor was my first job, and she told me, I want you to go back to social work. I want you to go back to grad school. So I had two grad school degrees. So anyway, long story. So she wanted me to go back to grad school. She said, the reason is not for you to learn how to do clinical work, like to have more like therapies, therapeutic skills. The reason is for you to learn how to protect yourself, like to learn how to self-care. And I kind of take her word to my heart, to the core, because she was somebody I really admire. And I think that's something I become really good at. I'm able to kind of detach myself. So a lot of time I visualize, like let's say my client came to my therapy room, and after talking to her about her horrific case, about her stuff, the moment she leaves my office, I just kind of visualize, okay, that door is closed. I'll deal with that next time I see her, like the next week or something. So it's actually very helpful for me. And then that also kind of helped me to understand it's better for me to actually work in the office because I can really isolate myself, like, this, like not as a, detach myself from my personal life because you know they're gone, they're gone. I, I work in the different settings, not at my house. So mm -hmm. maybe it's good for a social worker, like for me personally, it's in the office. Sure, yeah. yeah. That's interesting. So when you were doing that kind of work, they didn't offer any support for the people doing this work because I understand that it's very important in mental health for mental health professionals to mm -hmm. take care of their own mental health because they're listening to and supporting all these their clients but they also need to make sure that they're okay like you said but when you were doing this job they didn't offer any support to you you had to go and learn that yourself mm. That's a good question. Because my first job, I was more like an outreach person, so I didn't have to have that kind of support. So that's why my supervisor at the time said, I think you should go back to learn some skills. But then, and then since I started working at like different clinics or different nonprofit organizations, my supervisor had been very supportive. But I do have some really horrific case. I actually saw my victim, my client, on the newspaper about oh. something very, like murder okay. case. And then, so I had to bring that to work the next day to really debrief with a lot of my colleagues to talk about this and to process all this type I of see. stuff. Yeah. So because of this experience, are you going to continue doing any work in forensic social work or do you think that you would prefer to work with the younger population as you mentioned? It's funny, I feel I still kind of like functioning like simultaneously because I, when I moved to North Carolina, uh, I was still working in New York for the yes. nonprofit job for the human okay. trafficking. So then I, I become not like well, like not well known, but I become known to the community in North Carolina. Sure. They, yeah. they didn't know anybody who can speak Mandarin, know this type of population and then can help them. So now they I've been going around to like conference, they're kind of like a speaker to kind of, sh or, or I provide training to the law enforcement to kind of, share with them what I know. And Oh that's wonderful. Yeah, and yeah, I really I actually really enjoy doing what I do. And the police will actually like reach out to me. Like like the FBI reach out to me and say, Hey we we are going to this massage parlor. Like can you come with us? Just you don't have to be an interpreter but just can you just be a support. I kinda of let them know that we're not there to like punish them, but we just really want to help them and to you know so you help have them Yes. Mm -hmm. So you have gone to yes. support in situations like this? Yeah, like a raid, you know, in the oh, massage parlor. Okay. Yeah, oh. So it's wow. very well, heartbreaking, fascinating. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's well, that's great that you can use your experience to still mm -hmm. do this work. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, so I guess like that really indicates that there is a need for uh people to do this work since you were being called in to help out, right? Yeah, they were very happy to found me because they, there's no way this cannot, they, they couldn't find anybody who know this uh, specific population and speak the same language. And mm -hmm. seriously, like, when I showed up in the raid, you know, as soon as they saw me, they were, I was able to like 
kind of bond with them. Yeah, I understand their life, and they were yeah. And the most of them are from New York anyway. They're like actually oh, I'm from Flushing. <laughs> oh my goodness! Yeah. I also know that you mentioned that you were a little bit nervous about being the only Asian identifying therapist among Black identifying therapists at.、Mm-hmm. Um, UNC at the counseling、mm-hmm. center at UNC where you are now,、mm-hmm. and、um, you mentioned that you had work trauma. So I imagine the work trauma that you had in the past is what we just talked about, or a little something bit else? something else. I feel the work trauma was really like the Asian culture, like because most of I feel that I hope that doesn't offend anybody, but I work with a lot of Asian identified nonprofit. Working with、okay. particular population, but、yeah. I feel I think a- Asian employer usually have a different standard. You know, like kind of like for example, one time I had a coin sick because I have a very severe like toothache. So actually, I end up having a root canal. So I call my I coin sick to my boss, but then the whole entire root canal procedure, like my phone was ringing nonstop, like to the point I my dentist was like. Can you please pick up the phone? Yeah, your phone is like ringing like nonstop.、Oh, wow. So I realized was my boss was calling me. So I was calling her like, okay, I saw I already told you I'm going sick, and then she was like, yeah, but you for、uh, this is like one mistake on your case note.、Uh, can you like please fix it? Like I was like, no, I can't because I'm in the middle of my dental work. And、yeah. she said,、like, okay. Then she said, then I would like you to、uh, write an apology letter to our director saying that you couldn't finish by today. So. Anyways, the following week, I I talked to my supervisor. I was like, "Hey, I really feel disrespected. Like, I almost yeah, feel you don't for you. trust me." Yes, because I grew up in America, so like this is just so bizarre to me. So I asked her, "I、like, I feel really disrespected because I really was at the dental clinic. I can even show you the you know the proof." And she told me like, "Well, in Korean culture, you know, we you know you you have to work before you take a rest, or you have to." Work before you take a break, and I, I remember I challenged her in a gentle way, though. Because I told her, well, first of all, I'm not Korean. Second of all, I'm not in Korea, so I, I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why. Need, yeah, I don't know why I had to follow your rules like that. But that's a lot of trauma because it's really, it, I, I don't know, just like really, I just feel have a hard time. Like I just feel scared to even ever take a time off because I feel I'll be challenged or be、mm. questioned. I don't feel respected, and that's a lot of my trauma from the past. Yeah, that's terrible. Yeah. Thank、mm-hmm. you for sharing that. I think a lot of people can learn from that. <laughs> <clears throat> and what would you say about your work experience now at UNC? How has that been different? I think different because I just I think that my coworker just some I don't know I always told my coworker like. Is there something in the air or Carolina? What you guys just so nice to the point is like beyond like it's like imagination, because I grew up in Irvine, and I live all my I I live like thirty sixteen years in California and eight years in New York.、Okay. I never been to a place that I saw accepting ever, which is so ironic because California I I grew up in a place that's like sixty percent Asians. Yes, I grew up in New York that's a very diverse and.、Um, A lot of Asian too,、mm-hmm. and here I am. I'm the only Asian. Out of yeah, everywhere you know, like、yeah. like town, like the town I live in only have a, like seven percent Asian. So,、oh. but I can't believe like how accepting they are. They never like. I feel I they see through my color almost like, almost kind of see through me as all this Asian girl. You know, like they never like ever like talk about my race. It's just kind of like oh, like you know, just. Just kind of treat me as me, you know, kind of like oh、yeah. Susan has this and that. Like I have my I have my life. Nobody ever asked me like where you come from. You no, know, in New York I had got that a lot. Like people ask me like where、sure. you come from, and I was like、mm-hmm. oh I'm from California. I just kind of、mm-hmm. went through that off a little bit. <laughs> so I just like, I'm from California. They're like no 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 where you come from? Are you from China?、Mm-hmm. You know like always like that right? And that really is I it's annoying. And I was like okay I'm not from China I'm from Taiwan but just. I, I never got that in here, which is so interesting, because yeah. So and then I just feel I'm being accepted for who I am for the first time after、wow. being here for 26 years. I feel I'm being, I, yeah. I have a lot of like bad experience growing up, not in Irvine, like either、really? being bullied by white people. They call me like a lot of 
racist name. Oh, Why bullied by Asian American because they had their own identity stuff that they knew walks through. So, yeah. Yeah, that's true because you weren't ex- like, how old were you when you came to the U.S.? I was 12 when I came here. <clears throat> right. So you weren't exactly like most mm-hmm. Asian Americans that were born in the U.S. I'm sorry that you had to go through that, but I actually was um, mm-hmm. bullied as a kid, too. Um, mm. I had, uh, when I was in grade school, I had classmates calling me, like, chink and different things. Like, mm. kids Stop. can be so yeah. mean. I don't think they really know exactly how cruel they're being, but if you're different, they mm-hmm. may pick on you, right? Yeah. And that's something I've been thinking about for my kid. You know, like now, mm-hmm. right? He's the only Asian kid in the whole entire daycare. So mm-hmm. every time we hang out, you know, it's all white. And I always wonder when they are older. Now they are. He's only four. When he's older in the grade school, will they will things change? You know, will they will he also experience something very racist and very heartbroken? I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, I thought it would be good if we talked. Since July is BIPOC Mental Health Month, mm-hmm. I was thinking that we could talk about some statistics or trends that could tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about the picture of mental health within the Asian community or the BIPOC community. Mm-hmm. So one of the statistics that I found and that I've often heard is that suicide is a leading cause of death in young Asian Americans in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So, um, <clears throat> have you heard of this statistic before? Yeah, I actually even I did a study with a psych uh, oh. with a psychologist with a professor before at college. You mm-hmm. just remind me about that whole experience. About so I went to UC Irvine for college. Yes, and that school has not, I, I feel always feels like ninety nine percent Asian, but fine, it's maybe sixty percent Asian. Sure, and then they kind of. They found out a really interesting statistic from the counseling center that Asian identified students are more depressed in comparison of their white counterpart. Like the the rate of depression, well, the rate of them like having that suicidal thought is way higher. So it was very interesting and also very intriguing. Like what happened, you know? In and then so I was, you know, so the hypothesis was maybe in the in the background, cultural background, like when the Asian student, Asian identified student was growing up, you know, the parent had prepared them a lot for, for their future for the college. And then they they helped them to compa- be competitive with academically. And then, then they go to college. Mm-hmm. And then, so once they get there, they're free, but they're also very lost. You know, like really confused because they're by themselves for the first time. Like they, they almost like there was no independence growing up. That was mm-hmm. just hypothesis. Like maybe that's why they're all of a sudden very lost about like what to do with their life. Mm-hmm. Or what another hypothesis was, they uh, they were very competitive, you know, like doing very well academically. So they went to UC Irvine, which is a pretty good school. And then once they got there, they probably, they learned, there's a lot of really competitive students too. They don't get as good grades they did, you know, like in, in high school. And that really kind of shaking up their identity as well, right? Because maybe a lot of time they, they, care so much about their academic performance and now they don't do that well. And that really can bring a lot of depression to them. Mm-hmm. It was an interesting study. Uh, it was like a, a longitude, like a four year long study. Oh. So I was just there in the in the beginning part because I was graduating from college. I was senior. Yeah, okay. so, so I didn't know what happened at the end. Yeah. But I remember I interviewed all the incoming students' parents oh. about their expectation. And so mm-hmm kind of that they share a lot about like, oh yeah, my kid was doing so well in high school. I'm sure they'll be successful. And the students feel that same way too. They mm-hmm. believe they'll be successful in college. Yes. But we don't know, I don't know what happened after four years. Yeah. There's a few other statistics that I don't know if we want to talk about them that I shared, but also that the rates of reported and diagnosed mental illness is quite low for Asian American populations compared yes. to Euro-Americans. And that Asian Americans are also three times less likely to seek mental health services. Have you observed uh, this? Yes, <laughs> definitely. Um, when I was working in the hospital, uh, I told you I was working in the children's psychiatric department. Mm-hmm. So all the students 
all the students refer to me, most of them are Asian identified. Like, so most of them get referred to me because the school, you know, like the, the school council saw something not right with the student. But now they are here voluntarily, like zero. I remember one of my students was like a high, also like high performer in school and really care about his grade. And then he went to ER like several times. So oh. one of the reasons was he feel he had heart attack. Like he, oh. he feel he was about to die, like he had a heart attack. And that's mm-hmm. why the, the mom sent him to an ER several times. But they didn't find anything about it. They didn't find any heart attack symptoms. Oh. And then that's when they start to think, oh, maybe you have panic attack. Maybe yes. you're anxious. Do you want yes. to see a therapist? Yes. They didn't want to, but then the the school, I mean, the the doctor, like, real adamant, like, he had to see a therapist. Yeah. And when I first met him, I kind of just knew almost right away that he's he was very, very anxious. And then he, but he also in the denial about him having a no mental issue, but he has anxiety. He just, he had a hard time admitting that. He just said, no, I, I, it's my heart. It's something wrong with my heart. So in between the, the time I saw him, he went back to ER like another time. And it was oh, wow. same result. Like he sent back to me, he's like, no, he has, he does not have heart attack. He has panic attack. Mm-hmm. So we spent a lot of time like working through his anxiety. And finally, I had to convince the mom to get him to medication to really regulate his anxiety. And he got better. You know, he, I, I saw the improvements. Yeah. I don't know if we, if I have any statistics about mental mm-hmm. health that pertains to BIPOC communities because that's a larger. Mm-hmm. issue because that encompasses so many other yes. so many groups all together mm-hmm. do you have any personal thoughts on what kind of challenges that BIPOC people face mm-hmm. that could impact their mental health I think just the social environment you know like fun this it's not just genetic and a lot of time people think oh mental health is just something wrong with your brain you know it's not no I, I mean it is but it's also not i think just a lot of environmental factor or social social factor that really contribute to that maybe like kind of like depend on how do you grow up like if you grow in the property you know it is very diff it is very difficult you know like difficult to regulate your mental wellness if you grow up, you know, because you're always kind of worried about your your next day meal, kind of, you're always worried about your future. If you grow up in a very unstable home, which a lot of our BIPOC population also experience, it also contributes to a lot of your trauma, right? Like if you are, your parents are moving around because they're looking for jobs, or they're they just, you know, maybe they're separated, or you have a lot of you know, bigger family, like Steph's, Steph's family, you know, that all of that really contribute to a children, or a, your children, you know, a, a person's, like, life experience. And that will really consider, con- contribute to it. The center that you work at right now, does mm-hmm. that does it deal with the BIPOC population, BIPOC students? I, yes, I I'm, actually, I only deal with BIPOC students. So I, in this particular program called uh, Multi-House Program, and then... So that's why I, I was sharing with you, like, all my colleagues are black identified and, and they hire me because I'm Asian identified to mm-hmm. kind of make this a multicultural program. Yeah. But mm-hmm. yeah, so yes, I only see uh, BIPOC students. And so that's why I kind of, when they share more about their stressor, I can I can understand why, you know, they'll feel really anxious or feel really um, depressed. You know, a lot of times they have to take care of their family need, you know, like the family, the yeah, like, well, some, yeah, a lot of issues. Yeah, I mean, everybody's different, so I cannot say yes. oh, it's all that. <laughs> yeah, of yes. course, it's hard to generalize. And um, I mean, I actually, in doing some research for this, I came across the Mental Health of America's webpage, and they had some interesting resources. They have something called like a toolkit that you can download, and I found that it, it was quite interesting. The toolkit that they had for Last year, 2021, I thought was much more interesting than the one they had for this year. Um, because last year's toolkit, they recognized that in America, we have a bias towards the Western medicine model. And the Western medicine model has a bias towards evidence-based approaches. So it was, that was interesting to me. And now for a short break. 
Hello listeners, we're going to be experimenting with some shorter form content, under 20 minutes long, and we'd like to hear from you. Would you like to listen to shorter episodes? What would you like to hear more of or less of? Email us at podcast at talkingtaiwan.com. We also have a special announcement for all of our donors, past, present, and future. We're giving all of our donors exclusive first listening access to upcoming interviews with Karen Lin, Democratic candidate for Justice of the Civil Court in Queens, New York. Chin Chi Yang, a multidisciplinary artist who was recently inducted into the New York Foundation for the Arts Hall of Fame. Michelle Kuo, an attorney, activist, and author of Reading with Patrick, which is a runner-up for the Dayton Literary Peace Prize and the Goddard Riverside Stefan Russo Book Prize for Social Justice. Ed Lin, author of Death Doesn't Forget, and Joe Henley, author of Migrante. If you want exclusive access to these episodes and more, support Talking Taiwan by making a contribution to our GoFundMe campaign. We are so grateful for our growing listenership and all the support that we've been receiving. Now, back to the episode. One thing I know for fact is Asian uh, identified clients usually have a, a, a thing called psychosomatic symptom. Meaning, like, kind of like I kind of the example I just shared with you about that that student, like he feel he has heart attack. So usually that internalizes. It's almost like become a physical pain. I think that's maybe based on the culture, you know, that they feel ashamed to talk to talk about mental health. So they just oh, I just don't feel well. Like I have still make it, but sometimes it's not physical stuff. Sometimes it can be the mental stuff. Yeah, that's interesting that you bring that up because I did interview. Another mental health professional, Dr. Mm-hmm. Eunice Yuan, and she talked about how in a lot of Asian populations that they tend to have what you call the psychosomatic mm-hmm. representation. So, meaning, like you said, they have a stomach ache, maybe they have a headache, or present in some physical form, but there's a mental health related issue there. Uh, one thing I also wanted to talk about is this label mental health like does mental health have to be about some serious illness as we said like somebody having a panic attack someone being depressed Mm -hmm. someone being suicidal being diagnosed as bipolar having ptsd (laughs) all these like labels that we have no (laughs) does it have to be that way no, definitely no. <laughs> I know. I I know in a lot of clinical settings that I, I used to work in clinic and hospital, they had to diagnose you. Like even though you don't have any, let's say you say I just feel a little sad. Okay, to build your insurance, they had to say your your depression. But honestly, we um, it's not true. Right? And then we all know that. Like even the clinician know. Like now you, you probably don't have that kind of illness. So sometimes we, I will explain to my clients. I'm maybe how to write that down. For insurance purposes, but no, you. I think you're doing. You might have depressive symptom, but that doesn't make you a depression. And yeah, so mental health shouldn't be like mental. It shouldn't be like an illness, something that's so severe. You know, a lot of time, I just kind of encourage my clients. You know, if I'm my human trafficking client or my current like college student client, I said I'm just here to talk. You know, just some help to help you to process stuff. You no, know, it's not like oh you're sick. It's more like you just want to talk to somebody and process about yourself and then kind of understand yourself better. You know, it's not, nothing is like serious. So yeah, definitely. Yeah. Actually, the, I think that's very interesting because there is a lot of stigmatiz- stigmatization of mental health. Mm-hmm. So I think that it would be good if we could have some more awareness or education so that people wouldn't think the word mental health means that there's something wrong with you or that it's like some kind of illness or I don't know, maybe we even need to use another label that (laughs) is a lot less stigmatizing. Right. Yeah. What do you think of this? How do you think we can destigmatize mental health? I think that's why I I usually call it when, when mental you're here for mental wellness, you know, like you're here to, for your wellness It's nothing about, for your mental health issue, for mental illness issue. So 
I guess just kind of the wording will be different. You know, you're here for cons- counseling. It's not, I, I have a client even like refuse to be like refuse to say I here for counseling. That the person already feel that's too. Like, it almost indicates she's sick, so she's she will she uh, insisted that she said I'm here for consultation, my mental health consultation. So oh. like, that's fine. Okay, okay, maybe if that make it that works, that help I mean, help your mental health to feel better, like about yourself. Sure, you go ahead to call call our session or so consultation session. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so it's really very different. interesting. Sometimes mm-hmm. language and words can be very powerful. powerful. Actually. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that we have so much, so many different ideas of what uh, mental health or counseling is. Like we see things portrayed in the media and Mm -hmm. we hear about stress and trauma and all these different things. But it doesn't have to be something that is um, dysfunctional, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and... um, it's unfortunate that we have these um, impressions. Yes, I think so. I think it's unfortunate that we have to have that kind of level, you Yeah. Yeah, I'm also thinking about how the pandemic has affected mental health mm. in society in general, right? Do you know of any statistics or research that show how the pandemic has affected people's mental health. I mean, I think intuitively we know because we've all felt it mm-hmm. going through this pandemic, going through uh, if anyone has been through quarantine or isolation and all that, even like the, even just the social distancing and the personal isolation, mm-hmm. we all feel an increased sense of anxiety, but do you know of any, have you seen any statistics or research about this? Actually, I did my own research when I was working on a nonprofit. So, uh, yeah, so we did develop this research because as I told you, I, my, my target population is Chinese immigrants who are doing massage work. So I, I, so that's why I want to follow them to see that differences. And then I see a drastic difference, you know, before, like when the pandemic first happened and in uh, last year. So I, I want to do another one this year to kind of just see how that had changed. I think the, in the beginning of the pandemic, like, people were in a really panic mode and then there's like a lot of acute like depression, like mental, really mental health concern because you're kind of worried about your financial need, you're worried about your job, you know, yes. security, especially for the, I, I don't know if it generalizes, but I, especially for the people who are in the more, in a lower social economic status because they work in, like, they had to be in person, you know, like, they do massage work, or they do restaurant work, they had to have a job. It's not like you can work from home. So it really impacted so greatly. But I feel like by the second year, when we followed them, you know, to do the same survey again, the the anxiety level is still just as high because now they're worried, okay, now they, it's just, I think the whole pandemic kind of threw everybody, everybody off. Like, you don't really know what to do anymore? Like, should I go out? Should I wear masks here? Should I actually go to that that to that job because that job doesn't seem safe? You know, just I think people just confused, and that really does cause a lot of anxiety and depression. Yes. Yeah, the unknown and uh, mm-hmm. the uncertainty for sure. It just occurred to me since you have worked with that population of mm-hmm. uh, people who have been trafficked, or as you mentioned, maybe be the people that are working in massage parlors or that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you had any thoughts about the Atlanta shooting because the the spa shootings, right, were targeted at yes. a lot of the people that were killed were Asian American women that worked in the, the spa, right? Mm-hmm. I've, uh, I feel somebody just asked me that same question yesterday. Definitely heartbroken because... Because I, you know, I, I have met like hundreds of them, right? Throughout my career, I don't know how many of them, but many of them, and I get to know each one of their life. And it's sometimes it, there's a commonality. There's another. It's such that everybody has their own individual life. So I just feel that's why I feel so sad and angry every time there's a massive shooting because it's like 
they are each person has their life. They are not just a target for you because you are angry about something. It so that's why it's so heartbreaking for me. And I know their life is usually hard. You know, it's not they can hear that oh I want to do massage work. Usually there's a lot of reason behind why they're doing this work. You know, like most of it is about financial need. You know, most of the time like they have a lot of debt, they couldn't pay off. So they thought maybe coming to America would be an easy, easier way to to do that for them. And they know, they realize, oh, massage can be a quick, another quicker way to do the restaurant work. And that they decide to choose this profession. It's not by their will. And I just feel people like, I just, I justify, you know, then when I look down on them or like just judging them, it's very heartbreaking. We talked about this a little bit before when you talked about how you learned some coping skills and mm-hmm. how to do some self-care for your mental health. Mm-hmm. For the average person, how do you, do you have any advice? I know this is not, should not be taken as, mm-hmm. you know, counseling advice or whatever, but do you have any thing that you can share for people what they can practice to be more aware of their own mental health and mm-hmm. maybe do some self-assessment and self-care. Yeah, I think one thing I thought was, at least I can just speak for myself, well, to my clients. Like, like one thing I found really helpful was to journal because you cannot talk to your therapist every day, but you can talk to yourself every day. But talking to yourself is those kind of, that means that you have some doubt about something. It's still in your mind. So you just keep thinking about you couldn't sleep and you have a state deprived, you're anxious. So that's why I always told myself if I couldn't sleep because I came in thinking about something or a situation that happened earlier today, I, re- I need to write it down. I just kind of write it down because I'm talking to somebody. I write it down if I'm talking to my therapist or my closest friend. So I feel journaling was very reflective and therapeutic. But I also understand not everybody likes to do that. So I would say, how about do something like drawing, painting, like anything that can help you to express. And some, and I have a client told me that I cannot, I don't like drawing either, which I identify I don't like drawing either. So fine. Another way is, so I give them a worksheet. So what you can find online is like, it's called like feeling, like a feeling word. Like I kind of just a little word, maybe a hundred word or maybe less, but you can help you to identify your feeling because you feel, I feel angry, but there's a lot of kind of anger. Like, what do you mean? Do you feel, so that's why there's like a lot of, objective you know in that in that list can kind of help mm-hmm. you to identify oh i feel angry because i'm sad i feel angry because i feel rejected you know kind of like just kind of help you to identify what exactly is on your mind and i think it's mm-hmm. helpful and mm-hmm. that that can help you to process oh i was angry not because i did that person didn't treat me well because it triggers something about my my past about being rejected or something like that mm-hmm. yeah well, that's interesting. That sounds a little bit more like a game, like you can be a detective and, and like <laughs> maybe pick the word, you know, what word is the, that I'm feeling today and then what is behind that? Yes. I think one thing I want to share, at least for the population I work with, mostly our Asian identified clients, because I think maybe because our culture, we don't talk a lot about our feeling. So what I asked them, they just, either they couldn't really describe how they feel well, they just, I'm just angry, sad, you know. And that's why I came up with this list, because I feel maybe that will kind of help you to, for the first time, able to express yourself out loud. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. So how about in terms of the people around us? How can mm-hmm. we be more aware of the mental health of our friends and family? And what things should we be looking for? Mm-hmm. I think, well, that's a very Good question, a hard question too, because yes. everybody's different. Yeah. yeah, that's true. Yes, let's say, mm, let's say somebody's not, you, you realize, okay, this person's not doing well. But I don't know that, but then the question is, like, how do you know that person's yeah. not doing well? <laughs> right. Yeah, maybe, um, yeah. Okay, so let, let's, let's ask a different mm-hmm. question then. If mm-hmm. you know somebody is struggling and mm-hmm. either you've seen it or they've told you in some way or other, Mm-hmm. What is what is what can you do to be a support for them? Yeah, I will definitely let them know I'm here to listen. 
you know, how to, I think that one thing I think is so important, and I understand not everybody is a therapist, is never like try to give them advice or like, oh, you should be okay, you'll be fine. You know, like, oh, that's not a big deal. Because I, I know people think that they say that as a way to encourage or like to help them to um, kind of move on. But then I, I think it's very important to just be a listener, you know, especially when somebody is really struggling, just told them, I don't know what to say. And I do say that to my clients sometimes. Yeah. I'm not a magic one. I don't know every single thing what's going on. So I just told them, wow, this is sounds very difficult. I don't know what to say, but I, I hear the lesson. Can you just share more or like, if you want to? And then be okay to say in the silence because a lot of time when people just have going through such hard time that they might not have some, they might not have the word to even describe it. It also has some compassion because when people are going through a hard time, like maybe you know somebody's going through a hard time, but the person's not responding to your message. They say you kind of check in, say, hey, I'm thinking of you, blah, blah. But the person didn't respond. Don't feel rejected or angry about that phrase. Uh, how dare her? Like, I, well, how dare he? I tried to, re- try to reach out to you. You rejected me. That I think when you're going through a hard time, the people, or people going through some really like a mental crisis, they really don't have that energy to respond. Not that they don't care. So mm-hmm. just kind of be aware and understand, oh, it's okay if it is all, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And I think you also gave an example earlier at the very mm-hmm. beginning of this interview, how you mm-hmm. said your friend was struggling and asked you to go with her to counseling. Mm-hmm. You could actually do that, is you could offer to go mm-hmm. with someone, like, if you need me to go with you, to do something or if you're not sure what this experience is, if you need me to just be there for your moral support, I'll be there. I think yes. that's great. I think so. Accompaniment is important. Yeah. 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 Um, let's Okay, so I listed a few other topics that we could talk about, and I know like all, all these topics could actually be pretty <laughs> big <laughs> topics in themselves. But mm-hmm. um, so the first one is um, racism in the counseling profession. Have you uh, experienced that? And do you want to share any thoughts on that? Kind of like my own experience, like my client has some kind of racist remark toward me kind of thing? Or um, what do you mean? Yeah, or even you as a professional, um, because in the counseling mental health profession in general, mm-hmm. I'm not sure what percentage are Asian-identified people or other mm-hmm. BIPOC-identified people. Mm-hmm. And so... Have you experienced anything as a someone in the counseling profession? Oh yes, <laughs> but I feel I can go on and on about that again. And I do have one experience, and that was very shocking for me because I saw I'm kind of New York. New York's the, you know, one of the most diverse places, also the most yes. one of the most accepting place, right? I think yes. I thought. Yeah. So I start my internship uh, when I start my program, and. Honestly, so I was working with this uh, homeless population in Harlem. Oh. Wow. Yeah, and then uh, it's very challenging for me. But I really want to challenge myself. I, mm-hmm. I just feel I need to do something outside my comfort zone. And then, so I was actually being sexually harassed by this client like, who was trying to kiss me. Oh. And then, so I, to- I went back to tell my supervisor, who is a white identifies social worker so I told her about this situation and she didn't believe me she actually just totally like that did not happen I know this client for a long time I don't think so and I but I tried to advocate for myself I'm a real social worker I said no I don't feel comfortable seeing this person again can I at least go with another intern next time and she said no you don't have to so it happened again for the second time he tried to kiss me the second time I actually ran away (laughs) on the subway and then I told my supervisor again and I say, well, I really don't feel comfortable this person trying to do that to me again. And this the time, oh my, that was crazy. And the supervisor looked at me and said, maybe this is your Asian thing or something. This is like, this is part of your, you have boundary issue. I'm like, oh I have boundary goodness. issue? Really? 
yes, that really happened. And I was like, and something even worse happened because so I report that to my professor, and my professor, also not my race, some other race, yes. talked to my supervisor, and they both agreed something is wrong with me. They're like that did oh not happen. Oh my goodness, really? So. So the third time, I invite this client to the office. I don't want to see that client again on the street. So I say, okay, how about you meet me at the office? So I confronted him about his behavior. So you're not supposed to try to kiss me. This is not professional, but by now, okay. He was so angry that he got out the table. He tried to harass me again. And this time, some people saw it because I was in the office and it was like a glass door. So people saw it. So finally, somebody told my supervisor to come over. But the supervisor still didn't believe me. I don't know why. He, she was like, oh, probably something like, I have an issue. Like, I probably provoked him. Or like, my wow. culture, oh my I don't know. Susan, you put up with so much. Yes. And so as a true social worker, I realized I'm here to learn how to advocate for myself. I learned, I need to learn how to protect myself, also advocate for myself. So I actually yeah. filed a petition to the dean and then actually the professor got fired for oh, being wow. yeah and i don't know what happened to the supervisor because it was just like a contract yeah you know, in, internship so oh my goodness yeah so it was pretty insane because i talked to the supervisor about what happened and she she didn't believe me either she's like no you know people come to the social work program had to be mature so it almost like she's saying i'm not mature and i said wow. well I believe I'm mature. This is my second master degree, and people, my, my supervisor recommended me here. They were my reference, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then she said something unthinkable. She was like, "But they are Asians," and I, 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 I know. Oh so goodness. I said, "So what? They are Asians?" You <laughs> know, like, what are you talking about? Yeah. But because of, because she said something like so outrageous like that, so I was able to file a complaint against her, and that's how she got fired. Oh wow! Yeah. yeah. I'm sorry that happened to you, but I'm glad that you were able to stand up for yourself. That's yeah. unthinkable. <clears throat> yeah, I think so. I think, especially in our, in our profession, right? I thought people yeah. should be the most accepting, understanding, and all that. Yeah, well. yeah. Yes. yeah. But it just goes to show it happens in a lot of professions. Yes. Um, yes. No, pressure, no profession is exempt, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Agree. In your position at UNC, mm-hmm. have you come across any students or people in the counseling center yes. dealing with this issue of Asian hate crime or being a victim of Asian hate crime? Mm-hmm. Yes. I think I, I told you earlier, like, I, one of the best things about me as a profession is I know how to detach myself on client. So that's why I can last for so long right i've been working on this for 12 years mm-hmm. just last week i had this client a student is a victim of hate, asian hate crime in the campus i think this is the first time in many many years i i realized wow this is a hard that's how you feel to have a vicarious trauma or secondary trauma like mm-hmm. the what she shared with me was so horrific i i i feel i i was so sick i couldn't even look at her face because her face is being mm-hmm. messed up by the crime. Oh, she so was I physically beat up. Yes. Oh. But then nobody really want to investigate that. And it's like, oh, it was just an accident. You know, like the person involved was not being like fired from the job. You know, just, it was so crazy. So more like talking to the student was so triggering for me. And because I, I guess because I was able to see what happened to yes. her, like on her face. Yes. I wrote like, wow, this is kind of how you feel to have a courage trauma. I really need help. So the yeah. next day I had to reach out to my teammate, like my colleagues. I, I, I need somebody to process about. I need a brief, yes. degree. You know, yes. like I need to talk about this. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I feel better since. Yeah. 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 So was anything done about this particular case? Do you know? Uh, yeah, the police is called, but the police say they're investigated, but they never follow up with the student again about there's no update and the person who was the, the person who was involved like the perpetrator is still working at school so working that, at the school yes yeah. oh my goodness and then then she uh, my this client realized she was not the only victim and that is a very that was very hard to even swallow i hope that 
perhaps some of the other victims can step forward or there could mm-hmm. be something done. That's yeah. um, very disturbing, especially since mm-hmm. this there's more than one victim. I think so. And I feel sometimes it is like a stereotype by Asian of the easy target, right? Because she realized all the people, all the victims that the person targeted was international student by Asia. So oh. the person knew they probably would not do anything about it. Just like my client. My client said, I am done with this. I am going back to my country. So she's leaving. You know, she's like, really? I don't want... Yes. She said, I don't want to deal with this. This is oh, crazy. that's unfortunate. So she left? She, yeah, she's leaving. Yes. Oh. Yeah. So that's wow. the that's stereotype, and it's not a stereotype can be true. You know, like how Asian a lot of time give people the impression that you will not stand up for yourself. And really, that's kind of drove me for that incident for myself, that I would never be that. I would have to stand up for myself. Because I don't want them to feel I fit into that stereotype. Right. When it comes to BIPOC communities, mm-hmm. you know, we need to talk about racial injustice or systemic injustice that's been experienced by people, mm-hmm. and especially indigenous populations. Have you um, come across this in any research or any training, mm-hmm. in any of your training, like um, how this can affect the population? Yeah, like, uh, mm-hmm. so, but you, okay, so you're kind of t- asking in general for the BIPOC population or is the about the ind- indigenous population? Yeah, either one, whichever one you feel more comfortable to talk about. Mm. I think that's a very good question. Also, a very good big topic. You know, I didn't do a yeah. lot of research on that, but I do, I can really see there's a lot of systemic like issue that kind of, you know, kind of affected to the, you know, to their mental health or like to their access to mental health. But I, I know New York is, is a good place to be at because New York has, I, I think New York at least being progressive enough to kind of identify this issue and then have a lot of funding what I, you know, to really support, you know, like to serve our BIPOC population or community. But I think everywhere else in America, right, it's not, maybe not the same, you know, like kind of maybe where I am right now, and, you know, me being the only Asian person in the whole entire school, this school has 20 or 30% of Asians. It's not, it's not like there's no Asian. And then every day there are Asian students walking in looking for help, but we just don't have that kind of capacity to help them, you know. And because systematically, I mean, I don't know, just maybe just geographically there's not a lot of Asian, and just systematically they didn't think that was so important until the Asian hate crime happened in Atlanta shooting. The school student decide to file a petition that they need an Asian identified therapist. Like they need, like they write a letter, they, you know, like really went all the way to the top. And that's why I kind of fall into that position and I'm here. Mm-hmm. But I still don't, I still that one person, right, with so many Asian students, which I, I cannot reach, you know, that's, that make it really hard and unaccessible. I mean, I think that it's very interesting when it comes to talking about the indigenous populations because Mm -hmm. they're not represented so much in the population and it's hard for you or I to talk about that because we, well, me for Mm -hmm. sure, I'm not a mental health professional, but I'm not sure if you have come across this or done any research in this, which is why I found the Mm -hmm. uh, 2021 toolkit from the Mental Health America webpage so interesting. As I mentioned Mm -hmm. that they, in that toolkit, they Mm -hmm. mentioned the Western medical model has the bias towards evidence-based practices, which I think is important to point out because for Indigenous populations in particular and other communities within what's considered BIPOC, Mm -hmm. that some of them may have some practices to deal with their mental health that are not so-called evidence-based and that are not mainstream but mm-hmm. they could actually be quite therapeutic, I think, within the context of that particular culture. That's so that to me is very interesting, and I think maybe needs to be understood more. 
I totally agree. And then I think it just kind of reminded me like North Carolina actually has a pretty decent size of a population, indigenous population. <laughs> but like you, like I said, right, because other of the lack of resources and stuff, I don't get to see them, you know, because I, I know they are here because I, you just remind me, I did talk to uh, the indigenous, um, the, the student, um, you know, they're, they're one of their student department people. And they said, yeah, well, here in school, I were well represented in this school, maybe less than 1%. But, but then I still so hard to even reach out to them. And then I was going to say something, yes, and then that reminded me about one of my clients from years ago. Um, they are, I think they are from Mexico, and they had their own practice about mental health, or their own belief about like some kind of ritual that they think will be helpful for them. You know, it's and when I consult with my my colleague who are you know identify as white or like American, they have hard to understanding. They're like, oh, that's definitely not helpful. <laughs> you know, like that's not going to help. You know, like that the the person is almost delusional to think that you know what they whatever they are practicing is helpful. So it's very yeah, kind of like Western life thinking like we are right and your practice is wrong. And then that is, so I guess I'm grateful I'm an immigrant because I can understand both. There's so much culture out there than just Western culture. So I I always feel right respectful whenever they talk about their own practice. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm sorry, could you elaborate a little bit more? Before, when you were answering this question, I didn't quite understand what you were saying. You said either there was a student that's indigenous or your colleague that's indigenous that said they felt there's some representation in the school but not outside the school or something? Oh, no. Um, they are some representative. You know, there are some representation in our school because uh, UNC, the school system, they accept about 80% of their state residents. So in North Carolina, there's, they are like a quite, like not quite a, not a lot, but they are indigenous uh, population because the tribe, you know, there's, there yes. is, yeah. So, but I, I, I feel very unfortunate because I still don't, just, I still don't get to see them. I don't know where are they, you know. I, I think just kind of talking to you today, I said, like, okay, that kind of helped me to motivate me in, you know, next school year, I should really try to reach out to their school, their student body or their school, you know, their club to kind of introduce myself and get to know them. Oh, I see. Okay, so you're saying that you know that there are students within the student population that are, that identify that, as indigenous, mm-hmm. but maybe there hasn't been mm-hmm. um, that much outreach done to them. Yeah, or maybe their maybe their cultural belief they don't come for counseling. I don't know. I don't see them. So yeah, right. I think one thing I want to add is I I just kind of want to clarify. You know, I work with a lot of Asian identified population, but I know that does not cover every single BIPOC population. I just want to address that because because I cannot just kind of generalize. Oh, this is all. This is how BIPOC mental health should be like which is not. And I just kind of really want to be respectful of other type of, you know, our BIPOC population. They might have a very different experience with their mental health journey. And and I, I, I'm really grateful for all the, my other students who are not Asian identified. I wanted to like share with me about their journey, you know, like, because I told you that I, I, I only see BIPOC students. So I do see a lot of my clients are like his Latinx or black. And then mm-hmm. I, I'm so grateful that they never, like, don't want to see me because of who I am or how I look. You know, they still really genuinely able to share a lot of their struggles, kind of help me to understand their culture, and it kind of stay, help me to stay humble because I, I cannot say I know their what to do. You know, when they share about some of their struggles that I'm not familiar with. Okay. Um, well, I want to thank you so much for taking time of your schedule to be on Talking Taiwan to talk about these important issues. Yeah, thank you. So thank you for having me and thank you for inviting me to share something I'm so passionate about. I've been speaking with Susan Chung, a licensed clinical social worker at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, who provides psychotherapy specifically to BIPOC students. This episode of Talking Taiwan has been sponsored by NATWA, the North America Taiwanese Women's Association. NATWA was founded in 1988 
to evoke a sense of self-esteem and enhance women's dignity, to oppose gender discrimination and promote gender equality, to fully develop women's potential and encourage their participation in public affairs, to contribute to the advancement of human rights and democratic development in Taiwan, to reach out and work with women's organizations worldwide to promote peace for all. To learn more about Natwa, visit their website www.natwa.com. Now it's time for you to show us some love. We just found out that you can rate us on Spotify. Or if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Audible, leave us a review there. It helps others to discover Talking Taiwan. To learn more about any of the items mentioned in this episode, visit our website, TalkingTaiwan.com. There will list any related links. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Taiwan. I'm your host, Felicia Lin. Talking Taiwan is brought to you by Forumosa.com.